I was uh, seeing a chiropractor recently, and as that happens at these meetings, the chiropractor asks, have you had any previous surgeries? And I'm there for some tightness and pain in my upper left back, and I, so I say kind of casually, well, I, I broke my left hand, it's been a dozen years, there's the scars from the surgery. And she immediately looks up from her notes and she goes, how'd that happen? Ah, diving for a softball. My body weight landed on my own hand and just crushed it, kind of ridiculous. And she goes on, oh, so did you fall like this? And she kind of reenacts this hitting of the hand and then a, the arm and the elbow up through the shoulder and the body weight just kind of crushing down into all of it, kind of replicating what she thinks might have happened. And I say, yeah, almost exactly like that. And she goes, I thought so. She went on to explain that she could see there was some kind of physical trauma informing the posture of my left side that just wasn't there on the right side. A few minutes later, as she's nearing the end of this initial assessment, she notes this portion in the back of my right knee where the hamstring attaches, and she goes, have you ever injured your hamstring? Had some work done here? And I go, you know, in 2006... I was in airborne school with, with the Army, and on my last jump out of the airplane that week, uh, my right leg straightened a bit too much when I landed on the ground, and, and it hurt a lot. I got right back up in the moment, but ever since then, I have noticed a difference between my, my two legs and this weird on and off again, sort of odd pain behind my knee I haven't felt in a while, and she goes, hmm, that's what I thought. Then she, she explained that. That helps me explain the way you've been sitting. And she explained that ever since I got sat down on that chiropractor table, I'd been leaning my hands back uh, to, for kind of support uh, as if avoiding sitting straight up on my, my hips for more than maybe a minute or two. And I start to think of myself, oh, wow. Every move I'm making, every move I'm not making, it is creating a window into which this chiropractor is able to see past pain and trauma from like, 12 and 15 years ago. And though I was deeply appreciative that she's helping me figure some, some things out, it was all also kind of unnerving that I couldn't hide these stories. Right? She, she not only saw me, she saw the places of trauma. Could you imagine if someone could see you I mean, not just see you, but see your stories. The injuries and the pains that, that, that we have caused and the ones that have been done to us. The ones that, that, that have been healing now for some time and, and the ones that are still causing us to limp. The author of Hebrews declares, The word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, the word of God, before Jesus, who is the word, no creature is hidden. All are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Hebrews says Jesus is this 
the word of God is this double-edged sword that cuts through all the layers. Layers of our defenses, layers, uh, ways we avoid talking about this or that, letting anyone know about this or that, needing to think about this or that. In fact, this sword cuts to such a precise degree that every creature here is laid bare before his eyes. Talk about being seen as we are and for who we are. Dr. Brene Brown at the University of Houston has become something of a household name in the past decade or so because her research has has really pinpointed the fact that one of the most universal challenging things that people in our society are dealing with today is shame. Shame, she writes, is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear of disconnection. It's the fear that we're not good enough. Since the primordial days, right, of of Adam and Eve, hiding among those trees, away from God after not obeying in the Garden of Eden, we have been terrified at some elemental level of being seen. For there is something in me, there is something even in the collective us, some failings we have done or that have been done to us, Some thoughts or some words, some actions, some inactions, some way or some many ways we have not measured out. And if you found out, if you knew all of it, if you really saw, the deep fear is that you would just cut me off. Disconnect. Too much. It's terrifying that we might actually ever be seen. Which begs the question, why? Why in the world would we risk coming into a space in which we declare quite plainly that this scalpel named Jesus will faithfully draw close and expose us to the light? I shared before with uh, many of you about this writing class that I I took on a few occasions when we used to live in Richmond, Virginia. And I even modeled a writing class that I led here this past summer on that writing class. Some of you took that that writing class with me this last summer. Um, But in Richmond, it was this class where they'd get eight or ten of us in a room. We'd be given this very open-ended prompt. We would write with pen and paper for ten minutes consecutively without lifting the pen and then read our work to one another, one at a time. It was that last aspect, the reading aloud of of whatever you wrote, no matter where you went, went that last aspect that was absolutely terrifying. For we would be seen, right? Now, to be sure, people did did go there. I mean, plenty of us wrote about everyday things, silly things, fun things, funny things. But goodness, about two, three weeks or so into this class, people also start risking uh, sharing uh, their, their doubts, their misgivings, their divorce, the cancer, or the, the suicide, the affair, what the politics have done to their family, uh, the child or grandchild that no longer is really in contact. Sometimes it was profound raw joy. Sometimes it was profound, raw anger. And as 
what struck me as someone who took the class a few times is that even though everyone knew the reading aloud portion was, was coming, and everyone was minimally, at least mildly terrified every time it came, people signed up for the class over and over. I did, right? We do these six weeks interaction, have this thing, and plenty of folks would sign up again and again and again, do multiple iterations of this thing, as terrifying as it is to be seen There's also something universal about this deep hunger we have to be seen. If. If we can trust the one who's seeing. In this case, the writing class, it worked because of Valley Haggard. Right? That's the name of the teacher who led these classes. She, she wrote alongside the class, and, and she always went there herself. Right? She, she would tell these stories that, that would make you squirm or make you blush or make you weep. At, but open book. She always risked going there, which let everyone else in the group know, you get us. We can risk it too. I mean, isn't that one of the more profound gifts in life? When, when, when someone has been through or is going through the same cancer diagnosis or the same addiction or the same loss of a loved one or the same kind of divorce or the same injustice or the same shame again and rather than judge or comment on it or improve it or call it out They make it clear, I get it. Does not the whole soul suddenly want to open before one who can truly hear and empathize? Hebrews goes on to declare about Jesus, for we do not have a high priest, one who goes before God on our behalf. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize or sometimes translated empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, came as a human, yet is without sin, so that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hebrews declares that in Jesus, we have one who sees, sees us and, and sees right through us, and his most fu- fundamental word is, I see it, more I get it. And I love you. And the mercy of forgiveness pours upon this open wound. The shame forever nailed to the cross and the one who has chosen to take it. I sometimes wonder if, 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 if some, if not a lot, of the mudslinging that can occur on social media, the hiding behind computer screens and, and, and judging and almost delighting when others are exposed, all the railings about how awful they are, those people, that person. I do wonder if sometimes, ironically, it isn't a sign of just how deeply we long to be seen and loved. Like a child's temper tantrum is often, right, a cry for love. What if mudslinging is a cry for grace? For Jesus. And goodness, how deep the cry this day. But we know not how to risk whatever that's all about, and so we keep 
piling it on. Which brings me back to that class once more. Again, for the possibility of what it might teach us about leaning into and learning, practicing grace. The other key ingredient, I think, to that little writing class, aside from the teacher, was the fact that we always read aloud. The 20th century pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way in his short book called Life Together and and what it looks like to do life together as, as God's people. And one of his chapters is on confessing sins, how we see one another. And he writes this, Who can give us the certainty that in confession and forgiveness of our sins, we're not just dealing with ourselves, but with the living God? Who who can assure us that it's not just us playing head games on ourselves, talking to ourselves? God gives us this certainty of forgiveness, that we're really being seen and loved. God gives us this certainty through our brother or sister to whom we confess. Our brother or sister breaks the circle of self-deception. A person who confesses their sins in the presence of a brother or sisters knows they're no longer alone. That person experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. Bonhoeffer's not arguing that every last shame, pain, hurt, injustice need be named before the entire church or or necessarily to anybody. He's not arguing that we need a priest to confess our sins. We have direct access to God in prayer, absolutely. But he's pressing the point that often it isn't until we read it aloud (laughs) before another that we know the certainty and fullness of the gift of forgiveness and mercy. There's just something about naming the brokenness, naming the stories that are sometimes more visible on us than we realize, actually. Naming them before another broken person who is the presence of God's body to us. Something about that that is central to the healing. Our brothers and sister, sister breaks the circle of self-deception. Bonhoeffer goes on to add just just this. Confession. Reading aloud. In the presence of a brother or sister. It is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It it, it cuts a person. It's a dreadful blow to pride. And and, and the deep and mental and physical pain of humiliation before a brother or sister. Which means before God. We experience the cross of Jesus as our rescue and salvation. The old person dies, but it's God who has conquered that person. Now we share in the resurrection of Christ in eternal life. Resurrection vitality coursing through our veins by way of grace. Known when we have read aloud and received mercy. I get it. Yeah. Is the church of Jesus Christ a space where people can risk being seen? Is our response to one another's brokenness the mercy of Jesus Christ? Something of a restoration of that Edenic reality. 
I'm convinced that Jesus does look upon the church. And he says the ways in which we move and the ways we don't move. The places we are strong and the places we hobble. The places we hide. The places we talk about, the things we don't talk about. Jesus sees everything about our body and with searing precision traces these limps, these pains, these, these injuries, traces them back to a year ago or five years ago or 25 years ago or 150 years ago because it's all there. The corporate stuff, the individual stuff, all of it is laid bare. What if we risked acknowledging what is already seen? And what if we read that aloud before another and discover the profound truth of this passage that Jesus empathizes with us in our weakness and forgives? What would that miracle look like? We would surely lean in, no? I do wonder if God has in store for the body of Christ a new limberness, a new strength, a new resurrection vitality in the road there requires the courage to be seen in the darkest spaces. And there, precisely there, always there, discovered that we are loved by one who gets it and forgives. Amen.